Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. I decided to start Amazing Stories because as a fan, I couldn't find a podcast that was 100% dedicated to sharing stories of adventure, fantasy, the supernatural, and macabre. So please, follow, share, and if you can, support my podcast, Amazing Stories, where every day I bring you a new story. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this amazing story. I think it was painful, actually. We will handle this issue. I'm not a politician. In strict accordance with law, <laughs> on the basis of facts. Poison. Poison. A good source for British intelligence. Go, go, go! Oh, go, go, go! The script for the trial has been written. The sentence has already been agreed. It really doesn't matter what happened at the trial itself. November the 16th, 2011. The British consulate in the southwest Chinese city of Chongqing receives a fax from the local police. It says a 41-year-old British citizen has died in room 1605 of the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Cause of death, excessive alcohol consumption. Our road to the Lucky Holiday Hotel starts here. The summer of 2000, in a seaside resort on the south coast of England. A well-dressed Chinese woman in her early 40s shows up on Bournemouth Pier, wanting to buy a balloon. Not a party balloon for the kids, a giant hot air balloon. Charles Hall was in charge of the one on the pier. It's a helium balloon that carries sort of 30 people in a gondola all the way up to whatever height you want to take them. Giles Hall now lives in the south of France and we talked to him on the phone. And Kukulai just turned up one day and asked to see whoever was in charge and got me and um, said, I want one of these things in my town in China. He said it there, Gu Kailai, the woman who just walked down the pier and into his life. Now, she's a name to remember. She's one of our key characters. But she was sort of draped in jewellery and expensive clothing, so we we knew she was wealthy. We didn't quite understand what the situation was. The situation that he mentioned is all of the relationships around her, and that takes in money, sex and power. Oh, it's going to get wild. And for Giles Hall... The peer end conversation was the beginning of a two year roller coaster as he tried to meet Gukalai's demand for hot air balloons in China. We'd have these raging arguments on the phone or in person. And she'd say, You're threatening me, you're threatening me, aren't you? And I said, No, I'm not threatening you, I'm just telling you the facts. You know, <laughs> and, uh, one got the distinct impression that if one pushed her too far, you know, she could really be dangerous. 
To make sure that this bizarre business deal went well, there was a British middleman who spoke Chinese, Neil Haywood. Another name to remember. Neil Haywood was the fixer who came in very early on, and he he was sort of said, "I'll make sure these things all arrive. There's no tax import duties to pay and taxes and things, and I'll ease everything through custom." And um, he'd pick us up in a car, and he'd have a shoebox in the back seat, which would have fifty thousand pounds, which he called his hush money, his bunga bunga money. He used to call it <laughs> for getting things that he wanted. It was all very, very dubious behaviour. So where did the where did the money come from that was in the shoebox? Oh, he always used to ask him, "Where the hell did this come from, Neil?" He used to just tap the side of his nose. <laughs> £50,000, that is a lot of money. I don't know about you, but it's more than I'd have sitting in a shoebox on the backseat of my car. The balloons were bound for a city called Dalian, and that's where we're heading now. This is where our two key characters, Gu Kai Lai and Neil Hayward, first met several years earlier. Oh. Ah, Dalian's stony beach is peopled by hunched figures with steel claw hammers. Through rocks and slime, they're digging for worms. They'll sell them wriggling in plastic cups to fishermen. In the 1990s, few people outside China had heard of this gritty port city next stop North Korea. It does seem an unlikely destination for a young British expat with an expensive education. Tall and elegant, with his white linen suits in the summer and his tweeds in the winter, Neil Haywood must have stood out amid rusting factories and crumbling Soviet-style power blocks. He started as an English teacher. He learned Chinese, he found a wife, and he reinvented himself as a business consultant. Former British diplomat Kerry Brown remembers meeting him in 2000. We met in Dalian Bingguan, which is a Soviet-style building in the, the city. It's a very nice-style building, but there were graphically pornographic pictures on the walls. So that's why I don't remember much about what he said then, but I just remember the environment and how he didn't seem to be phased by it in the way that I was. We spent weeks interviewing people and no one could tell us why exactly Neil Haywood was in Dalian. Puzzling why he was there. There weren't many people in provincial China then, 15, 16 years ago. I mean, it wasn't a huge number. And all of them seemed to have a bit of a strange backstory. <laughs> so, so he, I don't know, I mean, the speculation after about his backstory, I didn't know at all at the time, don't know if it's true now. But it was a sort of unusual thing for someone to be in Dali and there weren't many British business people based there then. Let's tackle the speculation he's stepping around so carefully. We believe that at some point, Neil Haywood became an informant for British intelligence. We've been told this by several sources, all of whom refuse to go on the record. Not a paid spy, but an informant. 
We don't know when that started. British officials won't tell us. They won't talk to us at all. But we'll hear more on this later. I'm going to come clean here. Despite months of trying and hundreds of interview requests all over the world, there are so many things that we still don't know about this story. Because there are no heroes in it, only villains and victims. And it's a descent into the dark heart of Chinese elite politics, which is dangerous. And that being the case, most of the people who know the story from the inside are either dead, in jail or unwilling to talk. But on the backstory of our other key character, Gu Kailai, we have a good source prepared to go on the record. She always drew a lot of attention. She was petite, slim, she had a lovely voice and was very elegant and very persuasive. Lawyer Larry Cheng remembers his friend and colleague, Gu Kailai. The expensively dressed woman buying hot air balloons hadn't always been able to count on wealth and comfort. She started life privilege for sure, her father an army general. But then came the chaos and terror of Chairman Mao's cultural revolution. And like so many of the Chinese elite, her parents were thrown in jail. She was reduced to being a beggar. When her parents were in prison, she was begging outside. She did manual labour, she worked as a butcher. She didn't have much schooling, but she taught herself and then used her connections to get into Peking University. Peking University is the Oxford of China. So Gu Kailai was not just a survivor, she was a striver. And after Mao's death, her family was back in favour. She'd got the education... She started her own law firm. Next thing on the tick list, the husband. At the top level, Chinese politics and business are a man's game. This is why an ambitious woman needs a powerful husband. And by the way, it's also why all, all of our interviewees are men. When they fell in love, he was still married and his wife was fighting to keep him. But the wife was no match for Gu Kailai. The lovers pushed through the divorce and got married. Back then, they lived in a small room without a toilet. They put a curtain in the middle of the room to make space for a table and chairs. Even the Chinese elite lived humble lives in the 1980s. But China was about to hit the big time, and so were the newlyweds. She liked being called the mayor's wife. She liked the attention. The mayor's wife. By the 1990s, Gu Kailai's husband was China's most up-and-coming politician and serving as mayor in Dalian. His name is Bo Xilai and he is a massive character not just in our story, but in Chinese history. He's the one who... But I'm getting ahead of myself. Our next episode is all about him. For now, all you need to know is that Bo Xilai was married to Gu Kailai and was the mayor of the city of Dalian, where Neil Haywood was trying to carve out a career as a business consultant. 
how Neil first met the Boer family is um, not entirely clear to me. I do recall a story about Neil going on a bike ride, I think, outside Dalian and bumping into Borsilai and um, having a conversation which may have been the beginning of that, that relationship. James Richards has spent a lifetime doing first diplomacy and then business in China, a friend of Neil Hayward's. I think much of his contact was with Gukalai rather than with Borsilai himself. There was great goodwill between him and that family, and China being China, I would be surprised if he wasn't able to ask them to lend a hand here and there with the different businesses uh, that he was in, involved with. The discreet lending of a hand is what Chinese politicians and business people do for each other all the time. Let me explain how it works. The politician has the power to grant things like permits and land rights, and the businessman has the money. But they can't be seen to trade. They need intermediaries. Neil Hayward had put himself out as this sort of person to any company that wanted to deal in China. He could smooth the way, that's how it was put. Giles Hall, the Bournemouth balloon man. Neil Hayward was very good at smoothing the way. He had lots of contacts. Uh, whenever the, any of the kit arrived in the, in the port, it was in this, in, instantly shipped through without any, any tax being paid or anything on it. So he had a lot of power in that respect. But that power was due to who he knew. So let's take stock. We have a young Englishman on the make... We have money to be made. We have a fairy tale first couple, China's John and Jackie Kennedy, as some describe them. And they've now had a son, so that's a dynasty in the making. We are headed for a happy ending, right? Wrong. Dalian Seafront can be a lonely place in winter. The ferris wheel is silent. The haunted house is empty. The go-kart announcements are on an endless loop. Gukailai's life was not the fairy tale that it seemed, because behind all the communist pieties about humble living and public service, Chinese politics was back to what it had always been over the centuries, a game of power and sex. Gu Kailai told me that Bo was having affairs. Larry Cheng became Gu Kailai's confidant. Every day she felt sad and lonely. She even tried to kill herself because the man she loved was having affairs. I asked, was she really trying to kill herself? She did mean it. She had a scar on her wrist from a knife. She was trying to scare Bo. She was in such low spirits, so she took sleeping pills and tranquilizers. She drank a lot, too. And like discarded empresses and concubines throughout imperial history, Gukailai started to look elsewhere for love. Chinese literature even has an expression for women in her situation, the red apricot. So, she was a red apricot, leaning over the palace wall and down toward the street. In the beginning, I think Gu Kailai was the typical wailing woman in the palace. Then she leaned out to the street. She lost 
all principles. If any man was useful to her, she might take him as a lover. Her personal life was a mess. In Dalian, we talked to a lot of people about this period of Gukhalai's life, and though they didn't want to go on the record, many spoke about the long list of lovers. I did tell you that she was a survivor and a striver, though. The woman who grew up begging and butchering is not the kind of person to sit around moaning for long. In 1999, Gukalai turned her back on her loveless marriage. From then on, she and her husband would be a partnership in public only. Gukalai's new project was to turn her son into a member of the global elite. And where better to learn the English of the ruling class than in England? Through Chinese contacts, she found a language school in Bournemouth. I know, this sounds completely surreal. We're going back to a British seaside resort in a story which I'm telling you has changed Chinese history. Crazy, right? But bear with me. Valentino's Italian restaurant is opposite the grey Bournemouth block where Gukalai and her son lived in the top-floor apartment. She used to live there, opposite us, and she was coming in always... After half past two. After half past two? That's late yeah. for a Chinese lunch. Yeah, she wanted me to cook for her. Giuseppe Flacci remembers her coming for lunch. Uh, well, I mean, she was always serious. She, she never smiled. She didn't smile? No. I think she was very busy. I think she was. She always had people there, you know, talking to her. Gukailai did her business round the red check tablecloth moving money out of China through tax havens and into property in the West, all with the help of a shifting cast of intermediaries, including Neil Haywood. It's what most of the elite families were doing, getting their kids and money out of China. So Gukalai wasn't the exception, she was the rule. And it all made a big impression on Giles Hall go and have meals in the Italian restaurant, big meals with Gukalai and, and also with um, Neil Hayward. And she would often lose her temper, Very, she had a very quick, quick temper. And she'd say things like, have you transferred that money to New York to a We've had to beep out the name of the person who got the money for legal reasons. She needs that $14 million. <laughs> I remember thinking, $14 million, and I looked at my... Uh, my secretary, and she couldn't believe it either. And he said, no, no, I'll do it next week. And she flew off the handle and shot out the restaurant. Most peculiar and bizarre behaviour. And um, <laughs> I said to Neil Hayward sometime afterwards, what was all that about? And he said, oh, she ships money to in America. Where was the $14 million coming from? Gukalai didn't have a job anymore, and her husband, the mayor, was officially, at least, earning about £15,000 a year. But for those in power, there is no shortage of money in China. You just need the right people to move it out for you. Gukalai needed money for her new project, getting her son an expensive education at one of the grandest British private schools, Harrow. 
once he went to Harrow, she asked us if I'd paid £240,000 for her school fees to Harrow. And I said, I can't do that. And she said, well, I'll get you the cash. And I said, I can't do that. There's no way that can I take a quarter million pounds out of the company to pay school fees and then get cash back. It just was never an option. And that was when we first saw the sort of animosity she had in her steely look in her eyes. And am I right in thinking that she did actually threaten you after that? Oh, yes, she did. She threatened all of us. And she said, you know, my friend is the chief of peace in Dalian, and if you ever come to China again, I'll throw you in jail and you'll never see the light of day. I had protection for some while because she got very, very threatening. Giles Hall isn't the only person in Bournemouth who told us lurid stories about Gukalai's money laundering. Boxes full of cash, private jets and threats. People are scared to speak on the record, just not Giles Hall. I think Neil Hayward had got greedy. I think money that was transferred to America the way hints that he hadn't transferred the amount that she believed he'd transferred, but um, nobody trusted anybody. <laughs> that was the trouble. And don't forget the story of the red apricot. In Bournemouth, Gukalai went on having affairs with those who proved useful. We don't know whether that included Neil Haywood, but their relationship was certainly intense. He always said to us, you know, if she ever does anything to me, I'll cut her throat. He always said to you what? He always said, you know, he'd have her throat cut if she made life difficult for him. No, he was a great threat to her because he knew everything that went on. He knew all the shenanigans, he knew all the way the money was shifted around. You know, he knew everything. November the 16th, 2011. The British consulate in the southwest Chinese city of Chongqing receives a fax from the local police. It says a 41-year-old British citizen has died in room 1605 of the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Cause of death, excessive alcohol consumption. And the name of the deceased? Neil Haywood. Next time, Bo exuded from him it surrounded him uh, and when you were dealing with him you felt you were dealing with the main man thank you for listening and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story